Greetings and welcome to our next episode of Off the Shelf, Revolutionary Readings in Times of Crises. And I'm the host, Gus Wood, still uh, out here bringing you the best scholars, the best activists, the best voices to talk about the issues that we are faced with today as working people and how there are readings, there are articles, there are scholars themselves that remain hidden that we want to either unearth or resurrect and we want to show the <laughs> we want to, we want to show the not only the validity but the importance of their work in dealing with coming up with frameworks to solve the problems that we face today and so i am really happy to have dr teresa barnes on today to join me and for those you who don't know dr teresa barnes has been actively and I use that with a capital A, actively involved in so many things, both as a scholar and as an activist in dealing with a lot of the issues across, across different spaces. Um, her, uh, in her academic career, she is currently the director of the Center for African Studies and associate professor of history and gender and women's studies. She has authored two, uh, she's authored two, well, three books, actually. We're going to talk about the third one later on. But her first book was We Women Work So Hard, Gender, Labor, and Social Reproduction. And she also has co-edited a book called Restructuring South African Higher Education, which is a book that looks at the ways the South African state sought to redress issues of education within the country. And so needless to say, Dr. Barnes has has dipped her has has dipped her intellectual pen in many areas, and the third book we're going to talk about today, which I'll let her uh, introduce, is another area. And what and what I find to be most interesting, and why I'm happy that you're here, Dr. Barnes, is that every aspect of the of the issues of South African apartheid, and also issues of the social conditions affecting people not just in South Africa, but also in other places like the U.S., we, we, we do seem to find some common, some common uh, problems, social problems that come about because of structural problems. And I think a lot of what your books do point to the issues of structure and how these problems come about, especially at a time now where the structure in the U.S., is facing mounting crisis after crisis every day. There is a space now for your work to take center stage and for us to actually look at other places outside the U.S. where, where similar, inc similar instances have shown us what's actually going on. That this isn't something that's an isolated incident within the United States. So can you talk to us a little bit about your work and particularly this particular book and just just kind of just dive right in <laughs> okay uh thanks gus um i i i'm i'm, I'm smiling because your 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 podcast is resurrecting me <laughs> <laughs> i'm being resurrected that's not something that happens to a person every day so thank you very well, we much have to well, we had to resurrect uh, the, our, our previous episode was Hal Barron, who unfortunately passed, and a lot of his work okay. is so uncovered. 
And okay. so that's what I meant when I say resurrected. For you, we are we are unearthing and centralizing you. <laughs> I'm being unearthed now. Okay. Anyhow, <laughs> thank you, Gus. Thank you, Gus. I, I appreciate the invitation and, and your time today. Um, so the book that we are referring to, my the third book that well, it's kind of the fourth book, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, that I've written. It's called Uprooting University Apartheid in South Africa. Uh, and the subtitle is From Liberalism to Decolonization. And it was published by uh, Rutledge in 2018. Um, and uh, I, I wrote it after having lived in South Africa for 17 years and worked at the University of the Western Cape for 11 years. And part of that time that I was a member of the history department at UWC, the University of the Western Cape in Cape Town. Um, I I joined a kind of an a, 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 an NGO that was internal to the university called the Center for the Study of Higher Education. Um, so for about three years, I I I I did policy work as opposed to straight up historical work of teaching and um, was became really fascinated by the dynamics of South African higher education in which to make a very long and complicated story short, um, the apartheid system set up separate universities by race. So you had a group of universities for white people, a group of universities for so-called colored universities, um, well two, and then a group of universities for each separate African ethnic group. So the University of Zululand was for, quote, for Zulus, and um, the University of Bukutatswana was for, for, was for uh, Sutu and Tswana pe speaking people, etc. Um, but the apartheid system not only did that at the university level, it also did it at what we would call the, the, um, um, like the junior college level and also, um, uh, what's Parkland? Uh, the um, uh, community college. The, thank you, thank you. The community college level and technical schools. So you had this proliferation of supposedly racially focused uh, higher education institutions at all levels. So when the new government came in uh, after 1994, it had, if I remember correctly, 32 different higher educational institutions, by higher I just mean post-secondary really, um, technical colleges, uh, uh, you know, junior colleges, community colleges, and then full-blown uh, universities. So now, on the one hand, this is ridiculous because you don't need, I mean, for, for a population of 40 million people, why do you need 32 separate institutions? separated by race. Um, and um, the curricula in those institutions was different. For example, the university where I taught, the University of Western Cape, although it had worked very hard to transform itself, it was set up uh, basically to train low-level government um, functionaries. So it didn't have a music program. It didn't have a fine arts program didn't have a medical school. It, you know, it, there were things that they thought that so-called colored people didn't need. So they didn't need to teach them those things. Um, uh, um, 
yeah, so 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 the new government was faced with all of these inequalities uh, in 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 the higher educational institutions and uh, and asked NGOs like the one that I was associated with at UWC um, to do uh, policy research on how to how to redress this situation. So um, my my second book, which was about the ways that the South African government, one of the ways that the South African government decided to address this problem, which was to merge some of those 32 institutions together to make a smaller number of institutions. So the question then was, how do, who, who gets merged with whom and how does this happen? So that book was about, um, was about that process. Um, but in the, in, the, in, the, in the course of doing that policy research, I actually discovered that my heart was in history and that I, I, I wasn't, it, it just didn't sit right with me to work out what kinds of new policies there should be without understanding the dynamics that had led to the problems in the first place. So I left uh, that, that NGO, the Center for the Study of Higher Education, and went back to the history department and it took me a long time then, and like another 10 years to write this book called University Uprooting University Apartheid because I, I discovered that what I wanted to know was uh, how how had um, this, this, how had um, apartheid shaped and been shaped by what happened in universities um, not just what happened in legislative circles and what happened on the streets but what was the role of intellectual life in the proliferation and the flourishing and the growth of apartheid as a social system. Um, so this book is a, is a study of one particular professor and one particular university um, in, in South Africa. And again, to make a long story short, um, the uh, conclusion that I come to in this book is that while the story that people like to tell about that university which is the university of cape town um uh, and the story that uh, that the university uh while i was in south africa the story that that university uct told about itself was that it had always been steadfastly against apartheid that it apartheid was a system that was imposed on it from without from externally that the mean bad old racist uh, government of South Africa, you know, forced unwilling UCT to do certain things. Um, my research based on following the career of this one professor showed that it wasn't just that apartheid was imposed from without, but that it also came from within, it was also generated from within the university. As I show through this, uh, through this um, uh, um, examination, I guess, or investigation or exploration, I suppose is a better word, exploration of this uh, one professor's uh, um, political and intellectual career. And so I, th I think that's one of the most fascinating things that particularly that I'm interested in as well, is that we often don't necessarily incorporate the role of intellectuals or the role of higher education in either the development or the proliferation of any type of structure of oppression. And in South Africa, it would be apartheid. And so 
would you and this is and this is kind of what I get at in terms of looking at the argument of internal neocolonial theory is that there is this group of there is this group of intellectuals who are part of a particular class level that act as decision makers and and broker chiefs however you want to use whatever term you want to use that actually allow or promote these types of developments to occur and to also keep them propped up to keep to main in other words to maintain the process and so when you look at the u.s and south africa based on your research from that university have you noticed any any similarities to what you what you researched into some of the problems that we're facing today and it doesn't necessarily have to be with strictly intellectuals but also an internal strengthening of the social problems that we're facing right now under the trump regime or other problems that we're facing with COVID, police repression, et cetera? Um, I think there are, um, the, the field of com comparing the US and South Africa is a very fertile field. Um, uh, people continue to do it. There's so many parallels and, 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 and dynamics. Um, and it's, a I, I should also say it's not just uh, South Africa. I mean, my my first touch, my first real, ex, you know, lengthy um, interaction with folks on the African continent was in in Zimbabwe, and I'm I'm reminded if I, I could be wrong, but I I believe that you know the Dylan Roof who who. It was the white supremacist who killed all those folks in Charleston, South Carolina. He 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 was he was wearing a or he had a jacket that referred back to Rhodesia, which is the former colonial name of South Africa. So you know when we think about the the parallel the the political parallels, it it's not just with apartheid South Africa. It's with this resonance that these different systems of locations maybe of settler colonialism have with each other um uh i i it, i'll say that the the um professor who i invest who i ex, whose, whose political biography i explore in this book really was an ideal subject in that he was he was he was incredibly active he he taught his he was a philosopher who taught classes on Marxism. He testified against activists in courts. He was a member of government commissions. He did radio broadcasts. He received information from um, anti, from government, secret anti-communist um, networks in, in Britain. Uh, let's see, what else did he do? Uh, it, um, he, he was never actually a politician, but he was a person who goes from being a certain kind of liberal to a certain other kind of liberal. Um, mm -hmm. And he, 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 I just found him really, really fascinating. Now, all academics aren't as active as this particular one was, but it, it made, I, I, I hope it makes for an interesting book to look at the different, um, uh, the different ways that he interacted with the apartheid system, and from his position as um, as a as a professor, which gave him a certain respectability in South Africa, um, from his position of 
as a professor, you know, was able to 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 uh, propound the philosophy that um, uh, uh, different groups of people, different racial groups of people. He, he he was a pluralist, and he the his philosophy was called pluralism, which means that um, because people are in these different historical positions socially, they really need separate systems. The whites are more advanced, so they need their systems, and Africans might get there eventually, but for now they need their own systems and so forth. Um, so he he supported apartheid from this kind of racist paternalism um, that at some times looked almost respectable. There, there's a you you can I mean pluralism is a funny uh, a funny philosophy. Sometimes it can actually be progressive when you're arguing that um, because of their histories, uh, people may that it's a that it can be appropriate, you know, for people to have their own institutions if those own institutions are all equally supported um, and they're not and they're not uh, positioned in hierarchical ways. But in South Africa, they were not equally uh, uh, resourced and they were very much uh, positioned in hierarchical ways that supported racism. So pluralism is a funny, is a funny philosophy. Um, but so you, you asked me how, how, how all of that, um, how some of that, if some of that has, um, correlations uh, maybe to the moment that we're in now. Um, and I'll say that um, I've, I've, I've just written a piece that I think is gonna, I think is gonna come out in the next week or so about, about um, some really interesting, I thought, parallels that I saw between the dilemma of kind of, uh, the dilemma of people in the U.S. today who are faced with what they think might be four more years of the current dispensation, um, and the dilemma that I saw in like early 1960s South Africa with people who 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 were looking at what they thought was going to be a few more years of apartheid, and apartheid. I mean, but apartheid lasted 50 years. And the piece that I wrote is about the um, similarities between South Africa kind of in the mid 1950s. So about five years after the apartheid government won its first election in 1948. So that kind of early transitional period in South Africa and what could be an early transitional period here in the United States four years after um, the, the, the first um, electoral victory of, of President Trump. Um, so this piece kind of get, is, is encouraging people to think about um, structural and institutional transformation that can happen in the long term, not just on these kind of four year, or in South Africa's case at the time it was five year kind of electoral chunks. Um, but uh, when when something is set is set in motion, 
due to a certain kind, a, a certain set of dynamics, how that how that ball can continue to roll. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, the, and and that's what that's what we tend to kind of forget is that everybody likes to use the term fascist now, whereas in you can actually trace the roots of fascism within the U.S. structure going back over twenty years. Is that the most recent regime currently represents the the biggest example of it? Yes, because of the policies and some of the and some of the false uh, populist propaganda, et cetera. Yeah, it's there, but there were pieces in place going back into the late 1980s that set that 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 that, that set the stage, right? I think what's really cool about what you're doing in terms of the transformation piece is that what you're doing is you're showing the historical aspects of how these regimes not only take power, but how they set up shop, how they construct a module, whether it be ideological, whether it be practical, whether it be, and again, I bring up the populist method that the Trump regime used, but they use these aspects to sow down a culture, a culture that promotes their belief in repression versus our ideas. And as you mentioned, this is something that you often saw in South Africa, particularly when you look at the resistance movements and the kinds of repression that many of the resistance movements face over that 50 year period. You know, it's pretty funny that when you talk about South African resistance to apartheid, people often only talk about the individuals, the, you know, the Bicos and the other, like, you know, the, the smaller groups, the, the et cetera. They make, it, they, they make it so individualized and isolated that they don't understand that resistance was a long-term process that was unending as long as apartheid existed. There was always organizing against it, you know? Yeah. Um, the work of, um, I, I, I hope I can call him my colleague, uh, Jacob Dlamini at Princeton. We're both historians and he's a wonderful historian of South Africa. He's, his work is really encouraging us to broaden our understandings of, first of all, that resistance and then the rest of the population. Because, I mean, it, as we know, not, I mean, not, obviously not every, not, I mean, there's just a lot of history that needs to be uh, researched and written. Not every white person was against a was was for apartheid, and not every black person was against apartheid, and um, uh, not you know it, it's not just a case of the bad guys and 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 the resistance. And um, his, his work is is really detailed look at um, African folks who collaborated with the apartheid regime specifically. Uh, with the police and the dynamics in communities and families that, that that gave rise to. So really fascinating and difficult histories to write. Um, my, my, I, I, that's, that's not what I was focusing on, but I, I, was, I was led to think about this category of, of liberalism. And, and it's a really difficult term because a South African liberal isn't exactly the same as an American liberal. I mean, it's the same word, but they refer to some some interestingly different historical dynamics. Although there are certainly 
uh, some similarities there. And, um, you know, mo most of us, you know, most of us fall into the category of people who are not going to um, leave our homes, leave our jobs, leave our families, leave our communities and go off and, you know, resist whatever that you know whatever that means and i'm not just talking about armed struggle it's armed struggle in the south african context in the south african context who knows what it's going to look like here i am not advocating violence i'm just saying that m most of us stay with what we know and what we know is how to put food on the table as best we can and 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 you know and look after ourselves and our families and our communities most of us do not make the choice you know, to 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 leave all of that in pursuit of a political goal. Okay, so given that most people are in this kind of position of maybe sympathizing and wanting change and doing the things that are kind of in your to to, to use a phrase that people use too often, but are kind of in your comfort zone. I mean, you know. Going on a going on a march on a Saturday afternoon is pretty much within most people's comfort zones. Yes. You know, yes. you're not really risking anything by 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 marching from the mall to someplace. You know, I mean, you can do it, and then you go home and you have dinner and you watch TV. You know, you're not risking anything, even if you're even if you think maybe we're going to be arrested by doing this in our community. I mean, that's not the case. Certainly there are parts of the country where people are taking risks when they do that, um, but they, they still kind of rely on the system, on the system, um, uh, uh, you know, someone will, someone will bail them out, um, someone will bail them out, and I'm, I'm being recorded here. Sorry, Gus. Um, and uh, that someone will bail them out and the risks that they're taking aren't actually that risky. I mean, most of us stay in that, stay in that particular zone, you know, we'll do some things, but, we'll, but, but we're not gonna risk the, you know, our livelihoods and all of that. So um, I was, I, I, I'm, I, I was, I'm drawn to that kind of, segment of the population that would say in in the south african case we're against apartheid we don't support it um but we're going to go about our daily lives anyway and uh uh you know that group of people existed in south africa both black and white and and brown um and they you know they they, they lived through the apartheid period kind of like we are living through this moment in in the United States right now, and yes. we tear out our hair, and we moan to our friends, and we you know we 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 do clicktivism, and we donate to the ACLU, and you know we do all those good things, and we go about our business, right? Yes. Um, so 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 you know we have we have to account for we have to account for 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 that as well um, in in history and so I was I was I was first of all I was struck by the 
similarity in one like in one particular aspect of the 1948 election in South Africa and the 19, I mean, sorry, the 2016 election in the United States, which was that the losing party won. Mm -hmm. So the Republicans got fewer votes than the Democrats, but they won the election. And the National Party in South Africa in 1948 got fewer votes than the United Party in South Africa, but the National Party won the election. And in both cases, it's for the same reason. It, it, it was for the same reason. And that's that through different mechanisms, rural, sorry, rural votes counted more than urban votes. Okay, so that always struck me as, and because of that, people in both of those places separated by uh, uh, 50, uh, almost 70 years, people was like, oh, it's the surprise, right? The National Party victory was a surprise. The Republican Party victory was a surprise. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that kind of resonance, um, you know, it always struck me. And then when I started to look into it, there's a whole lot more really eerie similarities in the next election that happens in both of those countries. So we're coming up obviously in a month's time to an election. In South Africa, it was the 1953 um, election. Lots of really eerie similarities between these two systems that, that, that I, you know, that I wrote ab about. Um, and, and they both, you know, they, they, they both, both of those sets of um, dynamics take, take place in this population of people who are just trying to um, trying to uh, trying to keep body and soul together without getting into a whole lot of what John Lewis would have called good trouble. <laughs> and I, and really, this is kind of at the heart of what I argue to be the most important part in looking at this moment, where starting with the George Floyd protests all the way till now is that you you have this and this is and, and this is what I love what your book does is that it actually uh, seeks to create a framework for that particular liberal sense of I am against this issue I am against oppression however what is my ceiling as to what I'm willing to do to fight right. that oppression because right. as you mentioned that's one of the biggest issues that I have with a lot of the protest movements today is that there is no ideological basis behind what exactly they're doing. So when, when they, so that when they come up with an actual, when they, when they come up with a protest and somebody asks them, what is it that you want? And they don't have an answer for it outside of some, some, some uh, hashtag or phrase, then that points to, and that points to not only what you're speaking of and that they, they that they're stuck in this particular sense, but that they haven't fully utilizing the intellectual resources that we should be providing to them as scholars and as activists, but they also haven't had the training to actually understand what exactly it is they're engaged in. And so that kind of, that has a large part to do with the, not only the creation, but the maintaining of people, or excuse me, the maintaining of such a large segment of the population in the liberal sense, because I do believe that you can diversify that liberal sense a bit to where 
it doesn't have to necessarily be those who look at a ceiling, but it also doesn't have to be everybody who's ready for armed struggle. Like there, there, there can be some nuance there somewhat, but as you mentioned, the structures of apartheid and here, right-wing fascism do not want to nuance those, don't, don't want a nuance of that because it will raise the consciousness level and fighting back against things, I think at least. I, you know, I, I do, I do, I, I, I mostly agree with you, but I, there's also something that I learned that as a, as a teacher that we mustn't do, which is to blame the problems we, we have on our students and the things they don't know how to do anymore. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, CLR James said that something like when, that, that, that people will, that people will, invent the or the kind of organization that they need yes you know so th those of us and i'm a lot older than you are gus th <laughs> those of us who are used to politics happening through their through well-defined i you know through through work to define an ideology to work through work to get an organization going through a you know, accountable and identifiable structures, um, you know, a very structured kind of political uh, um, uh, framework. And that is supposed to move people forward. The, the kind of the incoherence of a lot of what we've seen in the US lately, I think, and I'm not saying that you're, you're doing this, I, I, but I, I, I think a lot of older, scholars see that as just plain incoherence and i you know i i i it, it's and I, I i don't want to just see those that those movements through what um uh, pedagogues call the deficit model yes you know yeah. that they're they just don't measure up you know <laughs> if they would just measure up then we wouldn't have a, you know, I don't want to see, I think, I sure. think this may be a way of, 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 of making real that idea of CLR James, that people are evolving something. And yes. I, I think it's really difficult to see what that might be. Um, but I think in an er, you know, in a, in an era where the, where the forces, uh, you know, the forces arrayed against freedom are, are so, pervasive and so well armed in a in and 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 when communication is is both uh quick and <laughs> shallow in some ways but but there, there there's also this huge tide of some kind of understanding of what justice is yes that you know that we we mustn't discount that. I'm not, I don't know where I don't know where that's going, um, but I I think something might be evolving that's difficult for us to see because we're so much in the moment. I mean, I keep I keep I keep watching as as, as I can't watch very much of it, but I you know when as, like in Portland, I keep seeing people walk up to the police. I mean, in a way, they kind of know that they're that 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 there's some kind of system that's going to protect them but that yeah. that's eroding they keep walking up to the police and allowing their hands to be zip tied behind their backs 
and they're you know they're kind of waves of these people that keep doing this and i wish we i wish we had more understanding of what they believe they're doing exactly why are why are you willing to do this why are you willing to walk up to another human being who is coated in body armor with more weapons hanging off their bodies you know than an armored tank that went into battle in world war ii why are you willing to walk up to that person and say black lives matter why are you willing i mean what what do you understand as your action and what you're doing and what you hope for and so i i don't think we know i don't think i mean i personally feel like i don't know enough about that and why that keeps happening in the in the ways that it does and what are the you know what are the what are the different um currents in those in those movements now and 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 you're, that's exactly the point i was making is that mm. it's not the it's not it's not the people themselves that are that are actually engaged in the protest movement i was saying that we as intellectuals and taking this back to the points you were making in your book that we as intellectuals what is our role in helping shape or at least analyze what exactly is occurring because if because if we as intellectuals who have the resources and who some of us are engaged in activism organizing etc are not writing the studies and are not talking about these things in a practical sense mm -hmm. then we're not we're being counterproductive to our role in whatever moment is trying to turn into a movement and so that's and that, so that's kind of what i'm getting from your book and exactly i agree with you 100 percent is that we have to as the intellectuals we have to step up to the plate now because we have and this is what i get from robin dg kelly his argument on infra infrapolitics is that you have a bunch of people who have knowledge of a system that is unequitable to people yeah and they just haven't yet jailed or coalesced it into their actual objective yet as to what it looks like on a practical sense and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we as intellectuals like you just mentioned are serving a different purpose than what we should be serving at a moment like this and so that's what I think is really cool about what you're doing and following that in, that that professor and that university in your book is that when there are times of crisis occurring, what are those intellectuals who really have something to say or who have some ounce of power or what where are they where are they choosing to lie their idea their ideology? What are they actually doing? And that's what and that's kind of what I want this this podcast to be. Is it, it's going to be that kind of that kind of place where people can look at these works, look at scholars like you, and say these are the kind of things that we can be talking to each other about that can help us create these frameworks for how to create our objectives, so that we can turn this into a movement. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do, I really believe. I mean, I, 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 I believe in what you're what the kind of work that you're doing um in trying to uh combine uh a lot of reading with the need i'm 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 using air quotes here this is a podcast so folks can't show but with the needs of the people yes you know 
I, I believe in that. I think that that is, I think that that is um, a, a very noble goal. I think it's really difficult to do. Um, the professor I was studying did the, did the opposite. I mean, he yeah. lent his considerable talents to finding ways to justify the state yes. and to uphold the project of the state mm -hmm. and to uphold the project of, of the inequalities that the state perpetuated and, and entrenched. He did it by saying, well, it, it's going to serve those inferior people better if we do this. So he, you know, he did it from that particular standpoint. But I, one of the things that I hope my work does is to broaden our understanding of the range of people who supported apartheid. Because we have this vision that they were all hairy monsters with fangs who ate <laughs> children for breakfast. And, and may, there were some like that, you know, like dyed in the wool, um, uh, you know, always hated African people, you know, uh, uh, you know in, a, in any way, shape or form. There certainly were people like that who believed that Africans were the children of Ham and they were all going to go to hell. And, you know, they were basically non-human. Non there, there were people who supported apartheid who were like that. But there was a whole other group of people who supported apartheid because they believed that African people were, were just hadn't risen to our level of civilization yet. And until they did so, we, you know, we, we had to give them separate institutions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, apartheid, apartheid didn't just stem from one place in South African society. It came, it was, it was kind of a blending of um, maybe, maybe not so much at the very beginning, but for a system that lasted for 50 years, it, 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 it I mean, people joined it, I guess is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. People, yes, people yes. found that intellectual and political project to be attractive for a whole set of reasons. And, you know, the hairy monster um, theory of apartheid really doesn't hold up. Yes. You know, yes. It, 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 it really doesn't hold up. Uh, that, uh, the the that, injustice of it is undeniable, but the reason that different groups of people supported it, 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 it those are things that we as historians, um, that, that's a task that, that is still ahead of us. We don't, we don't know enough about that because we've been, you know, stuck to the hairy monster theory for so long. <laughs> And this is why I said at the beginning of this episode that you were going to be the revelation, because I think that that is a that is a revelation like point you're making is that it the hairy monster just come from me. I'm not. I mean, I'm far from the first person who's made that observation. I mean, you know, intellectual work is one person builds on the work of the next person who builds on the work of the next person sure. and so on. So I'm 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 far from being the first person to have that insight. But I, I don't think it's been developed enough. I don't think it's and I I don't think it's been developed far enough. I mean, I would I would think of this as a field, and I think uh, Jacob Blamini would probably who is actually a person who is who has who has done really really deeply original work for the first time. I'm not in that category, but I I, I mean, this whole field of what why why do people what what are, what's the range of people who are supporting injustice? Mm -hmm. uh, 
man manifest injustice injustice in front of their faces on a daily basis yes. why do people support that and what's the range of people who support that which you have to understand if you're gonna have to try to figure out how to pull those roots out of the soil that's why i called my book uprooting apartheid you you have to trace that back yes. down i mean anybody who's dug up a weed out of their lawn knows that you can pull up the flower you can pull off a few leaves but unless you find the tool to dig down into the earth to pull the whole root out it's gonna come back that's right that's right so, <laughs> that's, so true. that's the work that that i think we see a lot of work like that still needs to be done definitely and, and again you're one of the path-breaking scholars that's leading that way and you are the first person to make that revelation on this podcast so i can call the revelation simply because of that <laughs> but yeah we can end on that note you know dr barnes this is just has just been an amazing conversation i'm sure that people that listen to this are going to get so many notes and so many thinking and talking points about how to have some conversations about the current moment so I really appreciate you coming and just really just laying all of this out. If do you have any final words before we close out? I uh, know I just want to thank you, Gus. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, um, whether on a podcast or uh, you know, in anywhere else. Um, thank you for thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. And again, this work couldn't have been brought to you without the amazing support of the Humanities Research Institute, who is sponsoring this podcast. And so always major shouts out to them. And we're just going to continue off the shelf, revolutionary readings in times of crisis. And so thank you. Thanking Dr. Barnes again. And we'll see everybody next time. Take care and always power to the people.